Hi, Chris Felton here. Welcome to my podcast where we hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. Over the next several months, we're going to take a journey through the years of messages that I've spoken in the last decade that are both memorable, monumental, and I think marking to both me and the global family. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. God bless you. Well, grab a hand. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing all over the world and just the way you're, you're behaving so, so, so kindly. I was say so godly. You're God, so that's probably pretty obvious. And Lord, we bless this time. We pray for you to open our eyes. Help us to understand your ways. Amen. Um, I, I feel like, because of the role that I play in our church, in our movement, I feel like every message I have has some kind of prophetic thing to it. Uh, I mean, even when I'm not trying, I feel like it kind of seeps in there because it's kind of who I am. And so, uh, but, but this is not that. This is a message that's actually a prophetic word. Do, you know, like often I feel like I teach and then there's some prophetic stuff in it. This is like, this is a prophetic word it has a little teaching in it. Does that make sense? And it's actually come from several encounters I've had in the last six weeks. And, um, and, and uh, I want to tell you about, about uh, eight days ago, I w- woke up every morning. I woke up eight days ago, and the Lord said to me, just as I'd come awake, um, do you believe in providence? Do you believe in providence? And, and the first time it had happened, I'm like, oh, well, I I, yes, I guess I do. And then the next day, I, I woke up in the morning, do you believe in providence? Then the next day, do you believe in providence? I'm like, how do you know that's the Lord? I don't use the word providence. I don't even hang out with people who use the word providence. I have to look it up to figure out what providence even means. And so the Lord, for five straight days, every morning, I wake up. As soon as I come conscious, do you believe in providence? Do you believe in providence? And providence, uh, you know, providence, I looked it up. <laughs> it means the foreseen care and guidance of God over the creatures of the earth, or it means, and it means God, especially when conceived as all-knowing, directing the universe and the affairs of mankind with wise benevolence. Now, when I'm talking about providence here, I understand it includes all that, and I did some reading, but when I'm talking about providence right now, I'm not just talking about that God's caring I mean God's sovereign. How many know God is sovereign? And there's, these, there's this time, and this is what the whole message is about, is that God loves free will. God so loves free will that actually people can go to hell because they choose to. I mean, God goes, over my dead body will you go to hell, but how many know some people will step, step over it and go? Because God so loves free will. Like, God doesn't like to control people. But the truth is, is that once in a while, throughout history and in the scriptures, God decides to step in and, and, and create, and, and with his sovereign will, override free will. <laughs> Are you following me? I had a, a, an open vision about 10 years before I came to Bethel. So that would have been somewhere around 31 years ago, which kind of dates the, the yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> I am really old. Anyway. Every time I say things like that, my children who weren't even born then laugh, you know, so. And uh, in the vision, 
I, was, I saw God, and he was intently walking down this path. Intently. No, not, not like meandering, but intently walking with intent down this path. And there were people standing in front of him, kind of like defensive linemen in a football game, and they were preparing themselves to resist his destination. And kind of like a Spider-Man movie, he was grabbing them by the arms and tossing them, just throwing them like they were ragdolls, just throwing them. That's <laughs> a little Old Testament. That's what I saw. <laughs> and as he threw the last guy, I was left next. And I, I, was, I, was, I was positioning myself to resist him, and he looks right in my eyes. You know how someone just catches your attention? He looks right in my eyes, and he says, get out of my way. Get out of my way. And I remember in the vision, I'm sure this was happening really quickly, but in the vision, I was kind of like trying to decide, like, should I resist or should I listen? And he reached out for my arm, and when he did, I moved. I just moved, like, abruptly, like, moved. And he passed by. And as he passed by, he didn't look back. He just said, now follow. Now follow. And it was a very difficult season for us. And it's one of those seasons where, you know, God prophesies this, but everything is going that way. And you're like, maybe I miss God. Maybe we should do something different. Maybe we should, you know. And it was one of those seasons where I was like in that, like, well, this isn't, God's ideas aren't working. I never would have thought of it like this, of course. God's eyes aren't, ideas aren't working. Maybe we should try some other ones. It's kind of one of those seasons. Because you can't understand why it's going the wrong way, because you've got a good heart, and you've done everything you're supposed to do. This is not working. And then I have this vision. And how many know when you have something like that, it just narrows your choices right down? You're like, okay, I don't know where we're going. I don't know why this isn't working. I can't figure out why my God doesn't seem to be answering my prayers, why my prophecies aren't coming true, but just follow. <laughs> and we spent the next 10 years following, and that's how we earnestly got here. We were just following. There are sovereign seasons in life in which God, I don't know how else to say it, or how else to say it he just takes over. He loves free will, but then there are times when God goes, um, you kind of like, God, are you for me or against me? Like Joshua, Jericho, and God goes, no. <laughs> Rather, I've come as the captain. The question isn't, am I for you? The question is, are you for me? And there are seasons when God just says, I am not for you or against you. I am coming as the captain. And the question is, are you going to follow? I have predetermined the outcome, and I will not be derailed. And the question is, are you on my train? Because I'm not on your train. In Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abraham. And, and, and his name is still Abram. So this is before his name changed. It's early in Abram's life. And God says to Abram, I am going to bless you. And I am going, you're going to have a fantastic legacy. Your, your legacy is going to be so blessed. But, but, there'll be 400 years when your people 
will be in Egypt. No, we'll be in bondage in Egypt. So there's going to be this amazing, like the overview of your life is going to be amazing, but there's going to be this 400 years when your people will be in bondage. And here's, the, here's, the, uh, and here's how he ends it. Then in the fourth generation, they will return from here, talking about the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. I'll put it together for you because you didn't get a chance to read it with me. God says, here's what's going to happen. They're going to be in bondage for 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorite is complete. Then I'm going to release them. Are you with me? It's like God saying, I'm going to let them have their free way. There's going to be sin. It's going to be more sin. The sin's going to keep growing. It's going to keep growing. It's going to look like it's taking over. And then it gets complete. And I go, that's enough. I step in. Are you following me? Now we have, so that's the prophecy. And the fulfillment is in Exodus chapter 3. And this is the story, and I won't read it all, but this is the story of Moses encountering the burning bush. Do you remember this story? And Moses walks by this burning bush. The bush starts talking to him. It's not George. He starts talking back to the bush. And, and God says, I have seen the affliction and the oppression of my people. And I am going to set my people free. Therefore, I send you. And, and it's a very actually kind of funny story. Moses goes, well, first of all, who are you? And then who am I? And who shall I say sent me? And God goes, I am. And Moses is like, you got a last name? God goes, I am that I am. I hope that clears it up. And, and they have this dialogue where God says, I have decided, I have decreed that I am going to set my people free and I've heard of them, their oppression in Egypt, and I'm sending you and you're going to free them. Now, let's put this together for a minute. Moses tried to free them 40 years earlier. The problem was, it wasn't the 400th year, and the iniquity of the Amorite wasn't fulfilled. Are you with me? In other words, right guy, wrong time. What happens? Moses, God says to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsions, and I, except for under compulsion. I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike the Egyptian with miracles, and I will, I will be in the midst of them, and then they will let you go. How many of you know God says, even Pharaoh has free will till he doesn't? And God sends Moses and Aaron down to Egypt, and they stand in front of Pharaoh, and they go, hey, we had a conversation with God. Uh, his name is I Am. And he said, you should let his people go. Didn't think it was a suggestion. If I were you, I'd let him go. And Pharaoh goes, well, how do you know that you... How do I know you talk to a God? Aaron, show him that trick. <laughs> Throws down the staff, you remember? Comes a snake. Pharaoh's sorcerers throw down their staffs, becomes two snakes. And Aaron's snake eats the sorcerer's snakes. You remember that? I just want to make a comment. Every time we see miracles, people are like, that's like the New Age movement. I propose that they're copying us. We aren't copying them. And by the way, if the sorcerers copy it, it's only because it's powerful. And, you know, you know the story. Pharaoh says, I'm not letting them go for that. 
And so they come back the next day, and the next day is they turn the Nile River to blood, and the sorcerers do the same. And the next day, they turn, they, a few days later, they, they release frogs on the land, and the sorcerers do the same. I <laughs> think it's kind of funny because, you know, you, you see kind of, uh, you know, Merlin and Harry, you know, the two sorcerers. <laughs> They're like, boss, I can do that too. You know, <laughs> it's like, we're, on, we're already under plagues, and now the sorcerers are plaguing the same land that... It's like dumb and dumber. But anyway, I just thought the whole thing was kind of funny. And finally, as you know the story, they finally do let God's people go. And then Pharaoh has a change of heart and drowns in the Red Sea. So you, you, you understand the story. But my point is this, that God makes a decree. He tells Abram 400 years or 300 years before the act. This is what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. And for 400 years, the people are in bondage. Can you imagine if you're one of those people? You're praying and it feels like your prayers are bouncing off a glass ceiling. Like, does God care? Does God know what's happening? Why, does God, why doesn't God kill this Pharaoh? Why does he, what does, does God even know we're here? And then the 400th year, God goes, I know you're here. And God begins to sovereignly follow me move against free will. Are you with me? God begins to sovereignly move against free will, and God says, get out of my way and follow. There's two points to this whole message. The first one is this. We need to learn how to navigate Kairos sovereign moments and how to differentiate between the grace-filled gravity that we normally live in and then how to adjust when God goes, I come as the captain. I'm not asking you what you think. Okay, yes, we're friends, and friends influence friends, but right now, I come as the captain, and your job is to follow. The second thing I want to tell you is, and it's coming in just a minute, is we're in one of those. That's the point of this morning, is that we actually stepped in to this Kairos solvent moment, and we have to navigate it well. Now, the question is, in Scripture, does God ever divinely step in as he did in the days of Moses and create sovereign times like that? Like, does it just, is it just like an Old Testament thing before the cross, Jesus died on the cross, it kind of fixed it all, and God doesn't behave like that anymore. And I'd like to suggest that he does. Turn to Acts chapter 4. And verse 32. Um, This is about four years after the resurrection. Very obviously very early church. The congregation of those who believed were one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and and they would distribute each one as they had need. Um, chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, there was no chapters when Luke wrote this letter. So this is the next uh, sentence or two. Now a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. 
and his, with his wife's full knowledge, and they brought the portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Well, it was unsold, did it not remain your own? And was it, when it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. And uh, as you know, uh, a couple hours later, his wife comes in. She has the same question asked to her, how much did you sell the land for? She lies about it. She dies. Um, I, I, really, I really am very concerned about teaching this passage always. And the reason is because my primary concern has always been that we create a culture out of an exception. Because we misunderstand the difference between a kairos act of sovereignty and the grace-filled gravity of everyday free will in Jesus. My point is this. Lots of people lied and didn't die for it. Please. Come on, raise your hand if you've never lied in here. Bill, the only one. <laughs> Thank you. My, my point is, I mean, can we all agree, like, lots of people lied during the days of Ananias and Sapphira. Lots of people lied. And guess, what? guess who's interrogating them? The most famous liar in the Bible, Peter. I mean, they lied about how much they sold the land for. Peter lied three times after the Lord warned him about if he knew Jesus. So do you think, you know, I mean, I understand this is, the Bible's silent on this, but my thought is, Peter doesn't know Ananias is going to lie. I mean, going to die. He, he, he didn't die. He's doing what every leader should do. He's confronting a lie in one of his congregation. Then the guy dies. And then Peter's like, I'd propose that Peter understands how to shift. And he realizes, oh, this is a whole different thing than we live in. And he questions Sapphira, and she dies. And suddenly there's great fear in the church. How many of you know we could use a little of the fear of the Lord again? I'll tell you the rest of this story in the 12th chapter. So now we're talking about eight years later. Herod takes James, the, the brother of John. He arrests him, puts him in prison, then kills him. And when he kills him, it's so popular. People are like, yes, let's kill these Christians. He arrests Peter. He puts him in prison. But this time, the people began to pray. They're at John Mark's house praying for Peter's release. An angel of the Lord comes in, opens all the doors, supernaturally touches Peter. His shackles fall off, just supernaturally fall off. He walks out of the prison. The gates open automatically. Peter thinks he's in a trance. He doesn't even know what's happening is real. He gets out of the prison. He looks back, and he realizes, oh, this really happened. He goes to John Mark's house where they're praying. He knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to the door, who's the servant. And she sees Peter, and she forgets to open the door. She's so excited. She runs back in. She's like, Peter got released. They're like, nah, it's his angel. Tells you how many angel visitations you have. If the, you're praying all day for the guy to be released, the guy gets released, and you have more faith in the angel of the Lord knocked at the door than Peter. Peter. 
A few days later, Herod, King Herod, who, by the way, his grandfather is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod that killed all the firstborn trying to kill Jesus. Are you with me? This is Herod Agapa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. In other words, his grandfather's legacy is killing Christians. Got me? Herod Agapa has been killing Christians for years. That's how Saul, who later became Paul, got authorized to kill Christians because Herod has been killing Christians. He's killed James. He arrested Peter. When Peter got free, because they couldn't find Peter, Herod went in and killed all of the staff at the jail. Killed all the, all the prison guards. Now, the next day, he's standing up, and he's giving a speech. And the people began to cry out, A God and not a man! The words of a God and not a man! And because Herod refused to give glory to God, worms ate him, and he died. <laughs> like, instantly. The quick worms. You're like, okay, first of all, I want to remind you, that's in the New Testament. I'm pointing out that something was happening in the book of Acts in which God, their church was being persecuted for year after year after year. God seemingly did nothing. Herod, uh, Herod the Great seemingly died of natural causes. The Bible never says God killed them or he died of any. He died of natural causes. He's killing all the firstborn children. He's trying to get to the Christ, but he finally does die. And then he's got a, a son and then a grandson. Their whole legacy of killing Christians, God seemingly does nothing. Are you following me? I don't know, but it's not in the Bible that God does anything. God doesn't seem to interrupt the free will of an evil man. And then one day God goes, enough. God doesn't kill him for arresting James or killing James or arresting Peter and trying to kill Peter but when the guy doesn't give glory to God, goes, done. You're done. And my point is, is that there are times in history where we move from the grace-filled days of free will, and we move into this sovereign time when God goes, I'll take it from here. And we have to adjust. This is a terrible example. You can get away with lying in the days of grace, but you better not lie in the sovereign times when God goes, I'll take charge from here. Get out of my way. Are you following me? Um. Six weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm looking for the... And I saw the mutilation of children being transgendered. And the Lord said to me, the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. And I spent the night crying. Because I knew what that meant. Because I'd been in this journey for two months of a Lord talking to me about a shift in the way he's dealing with the earth. I didn't quite understand what it was. 
until the other day when he kept saying, do you believe in providence? 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 And I'm like, oh, I started putting together, I don't know how the Lord talks to you, but I get little pieces that I kind of have to put together, and sometimes the first pieces don't, I don't, I, I have an idea what it, like, oh, that looks like it might be a tree, but I don't have the other piece, and the other piece, and the other piece. I'm like, oh, that's not a tree, that's a bush, that's a, are you with me? And so I, I, I've been in like this two-month prophetic journey where I keep getting these pieces, I keep writing them down, I'm like, what does that mean? And, and, and so it isn't so much just knowing what it means as what I'm supposed to do, and am I supposed to say anything, and you know, when you have our responsibility, often like, is that for me? Is it for them? Is it for us? Am I supposed to say it from the podium? Oh, the pushback on this is not going to be fun if I have to. And so, you know, I, I've been sharing this behind the scenes because I understand how this can be taken. And I understand also that when you start talking about judgments and sovereignty and people dying and God saying, get out of my way, that it actually inspires a whole dysfunctional part of the church of people who like to prophesy against people and who are angry and have a completely different motive than I live with. And so I'm always aware that what you're trying to inspire and what you're trying to equip also equips a bunch of people that are weird and strange and truly have the wrong motive. And so, but at the risk of that, I am commissioned by God to do this today. I had three, I had three dreams in one night. I'm not going to read them. I did it before. It just took too long. But I, had the, I have a dream of Jeremiah. God said, I woke up Jeremiah 23, and I'm like, I don't know if you've ever read Jeremiah, but there's not a lot of fun stuff in there. <laughs> You're like, Jeremiah 29, 11. It's like, have you read the verses prior and the ones after? <laughs> it's like, if you, get a, uh, if you get a prophecy out of Jeremiah, like, you should start repenting before you even open it up to read it, you know. <laughs> and, it, and it's the prophecy where God said to the priests and the prophets, I am sick and tired of what's happening here because you are polluting my house. And he, and he, and he rebukes the priests and the prophets for, get this, I'll read it to you, for strengthening the hands of those who commit adultery and fornication, and homosexuality. And he says to them, I am sick of you strengthening the people who do evil so that they don't repent. Jeremiah 23, read it for yourself. I, I woke up and I knew it wasn't going to be good. I'm like, oh, okay, God, I'm doing okay. Am I? Maybe I'm not. And I went back to sleep and I woke up to Isaiah 19. Like Isaiah 19, Isaiah is kind of good and Bad and ugly, right? Isaiah's kind of like friendly, not so friendly. Ah, oh, bad chapter. I didn't know what Isaiah 19 was, but I, I woke up and God said, Isaiah 19, this is like over a period of five hours. Isaiah 19 is talking about Egypt. This is going to all make sense in a minute. I understand you probably don't know where I'm going. I'll tell you where I'm going in a minute. I wake up, Isaiah 19, I read it. God says, Egypt is arrogant, prideful, and I'm going to slap them down and I'm going to knock him down, and I'm going to step on him and stomp him. I'm putting my words. You know, he's going to, he's going to humble them. And then it says, after that, they're going to turn around. And the Egyptians are going to call out for me, and I'm going to send them a champion and a savior, and I'm going to deliver them. And not only am I going to deliver them, but I'm going to bring the Egyptians right into the middle of my court. 
They're going to make friends with the Assyrians who are following me. They're going to make friends with the Israelis who are following me. And they are going to be in the middle of everything I do, and I'm going to move on them sovereignty, sovereignly, and they're going to serve me, and they're going to be my servant and my friend, and I'm going to love on them. I'm like, okay. Well, that's better than Jeremiah. <laughs> and then I go to sleep, and I wake up one more time, and it's Isaiah 59. And Isaiah 59 is a story. This, you know Isaiah 60, arise and shine, for your light has come? It's predicated by Isaiah 59. And Isaiah 59 says, God looked around, and there was no justice. And, and here's one of the main uh, issues. And people were suing people unrighteously. And they were suing unrighteously, and they were bringing judgments against people that had no validity. And God said, I sent people, but they didn't do anything. And in fact, I looked around to who to send, and I couldn't find anybody who would go. And God says, and everyone who turns away from it, like turns away from evil, they actually become a prey. Like they actually become a victim of all these wicked people. And God looks out in Isaiah 59, and he said, I looked around, and I was dismayed that nobody would stop the injustice. And then he said, so I'll go myself. And he begins to talk about, I dress myself in righteousness. You know, this, this language that, that Isaiah often uses. I dress myself in righteousness, God said. I put on armor. I put on a helmet. I put on the helmet of righteousness. And I went out and I brought righteousness to the streets. The very next verse, arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Deep darkness will cover the earth. But the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Are you following this? God's saying, the church can no longer embrace wickedness. Now, how many of you know, as long as sinners come to church, there'll be immoral people in church? It's a good thing. We want sinners to come to church. We want them to feel welcome. How many know it's a big difference between embracing sinners and normalizing sin? And God says, that stops. And let me say this. God told me, it's a mixed message to the world. Because the world, see, the world used to go, I know what I'm doing is wrong. <laughs> and I feel convicted about it. But I want to do it anyway. Now they go, I know what I'm, is what I'm doing wrong? They think it's okay. They are commissioning them. They are, oh, maybe what I'm doing is not wrong. And do you understand? It's creating it's creating a crisis of conscience because the conviction of the Holy Spirit's here, but the conviction of the church is over here. Do you see how the prophets and priests are polluting righteousness? It's not about being mean to somebody who's stuck. It's about holding to a standard so that people know right from wrong. God is moving at the speed. God is moving at a speed that creates Kairos conditions. Did you hear it? There is an urgency to step out of the way of what God is doing. He has taken history out of the hands of men and he is molding and shaping it like a potter shapes clay. I want to read it one more time, not because it's profound, but because it's important. God is moving at a speed that creates Kairos conditions. There is an urgency to step out of the way of what God is doing, he has taken history out of the hands of men 
and he is molding and shaping it like a potter works clay. I want to talk about how God uses leaders. How does God choose leaders in this moment? Like, what things does God use to choose a leader? I was uh, reading Jeremiah 27. Listen to this. Do you guys know who Nebuchadnezzar was? Are you guys okay? You're like, oh boy. Everybody know who Nebuchadnezzar is? Jeremiah 27, 5. God says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts, which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and my outstretched arm. And I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all the lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations will serve him and his sons and his grandsons. Did you get all that? God just said that he chose Nebuchadnezzar as his servant because he takes pleasure in him. Now, I don't know if you know much about this guy. This is the leader of Babylon, which even in the book of Revelation, Babylon is the icon for evil. This guy was the king. He went into Israel. He destroyed Jerusalem and Judah, destroyed Solomon's temple, and took 2,000 POWs, 10,000 POWs captive and brought them into Babylon. Do you remember that? Then he set up statues. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story of Daniel. All of that's around Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he, he creates a statue for himself. And everyone has to worship the statue during the worship session. When the musicians are playing, it's bow down and worship the statue time. This is this whole story. He's killed thousands of believers. And God goes, I like him. He's my friend. Then in the fourth chapter of Daniel... He has an encounter with God. Seven years, he becomes mentally ill for seven years. And at the end of seven years, God heals his mind, and he recants following all those other gods, and he decrees that the God of Daniel shall be served or you will be killed. It's a little Old Testament. My point is this. God chooses Nebuchadnezzar and says he's my friend and my servant before he's born. God knows how to find people. No, God looks at people differently than we do. The church thinks that God's for Republicans or Democrats. Or independents or socialists, capitalists. And I'd like to suggest that it's time for us to step up and have our loyalty be to the kingdom. I'd like to suggest that if you have a political spirit that you are going to miss this Kairos moment because it will not be defined by the aisle. Here we go. The year before President Obama became president, the Lord said to me, Obama, Mr. Obama is going to be president of the United States. I'm like, okay. Those weren't my thoughts. And I, from this podium, said... I love President Obama. He's not the president. He's my president. And lots of our people did not like that. But I said, I'm not talking about liking his policies. I'm talking about doing what the Lord told us to do. And he said that we're to love the people who are over us 
and that we are to pray for them. And I intend to do that. And then when President Obama was running for a second term, I had a night encounter and the Lord said to me, I'm giving President Obama four more years. And I'm like, okay. And listen, by now I've figured out like, just follow, just follow. You don't have to explain it to your friends. Here's 14 reasons why that's a bad idea. I don't know. I just, I've given up. I've been 14 years working in D.C. on both sides of the aisle. And I've met some of the people that are wicked. And I'm like, I kind of like them. So I like some of those people. And you just start viewing people through a different lens when you come without a political spirit and you just love people. And, and you have to figure out how to navigate the fact that they don't have your core values in sometimes in really big areas. And you're like, and I have to remind myself, and this is something I do very often. I say, okay, if Daniel can serve Nebuchadnezzar, I can serve him. If, 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 if Joseph can serve the Pharaoh of Egypt, I could probably serve these guys. I could probably love these guys. I could probably help these guys. And I'll just do my best to just put my head down and sometimes my, my mind is swirling with, what are you doing? What will your friends think? And I'm like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I just need to do it. Just do it. You're like, well, I don't know why I should. Da, da, da. I'm like, I, listen, here's what I've learned in 14 years of being in D.C. Put your head down. Listen. Keep going. Put your head down. Listen. Keep going. Because trying to figure it all out when you're in the middle of it, is way too confusing for humans. I figured God that's from way up here and believes in providence, and he sees the beginning from the end, and he looks at the whole chessboard of life through eternity, and he goes, we need this person here then, we need, President, we need Putin over there in Russia at that time, we need this guy over there. This is how it's all going to work. I'm like, I just figure out that God's looking at the really big picture, and I'm over at the elephant looking at the toe. I'm like, that shouldn't be like that. God's looking at history. Even the reasons I would come up with that would make all of this okay, because I got some of them in my brain, I don't even think, I wouldn't even trust those. I'm saying, God keeps asking me, do you believe in providence? And providence is really happens from way up here. God's going, I'm orchestrating all of this. Do you trust me? I'm like, I don't like that decision. It's because you're looking at the toe. You haven't seen the whole elephant. You don't understand what's happening. You didn't understand what was happening when I, when I put President Obama in office. You didn't understand what's happening when I gave him another four years. You, you didn't agree with me. But you're not looking from up here. You don't understand the greater good. Just get out of my way. And I want to just say this, and I hope this comes across. I've sort of practiced it in my mind over and over and haven't said it yet. I'll try to say it in a really good way. You don't want to be the one resisting a movement. At this time, you can in grace-filled times because there's lots of latitude and I don't even know what I'm saying. I just know we all live in tons of latitude. We have all got it really wrong, and God just brings it around. We're like, God's oh, so good. But then there's these moments where God says, get out of the way. And suddenly you realize, 
I don't have an angry God, but sometimes God gets angry. I know at my house, I grew up with angry fathers, but in my house, in my house that my kids grew up in, they could tell you, my daughter's here, I'm so proud of her, front row. She could, second row. (laughs) They could tell you that I wasn't angry very often, but when I was, it required a different attitude from the house. There is something about, I don't like this word, the mood of God. Finding it and adjusting for it. Amen. Can you stand? Now, before we pray, I have to tell you that it's Kathy's birthday. The love of my life, my best friend. I'm so excited that she's with me. And I'm so proud of Jen and Brian got to pray with President Trump this week. Isn't it funny that in provincial times, God brings certain people? I don't think that the timing of their entrance into the White House was a chance. I think it was all orchestrated, and the prophetic word they brought, and it wasn't just them, they brought some other people to minister to him, and I know that this is happening all the time, but I mean, we get to see a little piece from, from our spies going in there, ministering to our president, loving on him, giving him words. It's all a part of this providence, and so would you put your hand on your heart, please? Just say, Jesus, help me to understand what it is you're doing, and adjust my behavior, my attitudes, and my actions appropriately. Lord, I pray for the heart of the sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do in the times. Amen. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.